As always, it's a little difficult to properly analyze and discuss a comedy work when it's very deliberately and intentionally a comedy work. I'm going to do the best I can, but don't be surprised if this is a little bit of a short one. There's only so much explaining of the joke I can do. <clears throat> Obviously, David Gerald, uh, I just mentioned him last episode, wrote this. Kind of. As is becoming increasingly common, this episode received massive rewrites by Gene Kuhn. Yeah, uncredited rewrites, too. That's, that's even better. Poor guy, honestly. So he's the one, along with Kuhn, or excuse me, Kuhn and Gerald are the ones who formed the episode. Although the two do good work, and we've seen that, so, you know, I'm kind of with it. What I find most amusing about this, check this out. First of all, <clears throat> Pevney actually liked this episode. Now, if you don't understand why I'm saying that like it's a weird thing, Pevney, well, he's been kind of abrasive. I don't want to call him a dick, because I'm not sure if he qualifies for that status. But he has certainly been very abrasive and loud in his negative comments about the show, and the actors especially. And yet, for Trouble with Trevors, he says, and I quote, I had a lot of fun with it. Went out and shopping, shopped for the Tribbles and made some contributions to that show. It was the first effort of a writer named David Gerald, and I thought he made a hell of a contribution. My biggest contribution was getting the show produced, because there was a feeling amongst the people involved that we shouldn't do it. It was a comedy, and we had no business doing outright comedy. I certainly wanted to treat it as such, because that's the way it was intended. It was a lovely, warm show, and I put Stanley Adams in it. Tribbles was a highly successful episode in terms of audience appeal, and the network was happy with it. Turned out fine, and Bill loved the Bill doing the bits he loved to do. The premise was humorous as hell. Remember my theory about how Shatner is good with light-hearted comedy like this? Or light-toned comedy, excuse me? I stand by that statement. He's one of the funnier aspects of the episode consistently, mostly as the straight man, as I mentioned earlier. Not to the extent of Leslie Nielsen, that would be Spock, but Spock actually also does that in this episode, so that lines up too. But you notice what he commented about? Some people didn't like it, some people didn't want to do that. Would you believe that list includes Gene Ronberry? I'll come back to that in a second. Justin Freeman. A, uh, just, did I just say Justin Freeman? God, I complete, I, wow, that's not even a real person. Robert Justman. <laughs> God. And... And I can't even... Friedberger. Friedberger. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'll figure it out at some point. He actually hasn't joined the show yet. Friedberger. I've heard it said Friedberger, so I'm going to stick with that for right now. He would become uh, the frontline producer to replace several other people in Season 3. All of them disliked it for what boils down to the same reason. Trek is not a comedy. That's a direct quote, by the way. Now, what I find funny is I've commented before about how Trek usually sucks at comedy. And I stand by that statement, but I think the catch there is that when you have someone who knows how to handle comedy, they can do comedy just fine. I challenge you right now, can you think of an episode of Trek, of, of any series that isn't this one, that is funny? Because I can, I can think of several. I imagine you can too, if you think about it for a minute. And I suppose that's my point. Comedy is just difficult to do. So you just don't do it unless you're sure you can do it. Gene Kuhn could do comedy. You'll notice I'm giving him a lot of praise, and I stand by that. The more I read and look into the making of the series, the more I'm convinced that he was one of the central pillars of what made this show uh, great. No, scratch that. Above great. You know what I mean? 
like there's good, there's great, and then there's like that upper 1%, which if you were to expand out, has whole many layers of great. I've talked about this before. There's a lot of layers in that 1%, both at the top and the bottom. And I think Kuhn is one of the things that pushed Trek above great into the 1% range. My opinion. Not, not alone. Obviously, I don't want to claim he did it alone. But man, that man had an impact. Anyways, the thing I wanted to comment on, though, and the thing I've been leading up to, because I swear I'm staying on topic this time, is the main reason Roddenberry disliked this was because he disliked the overall tone and general lightheartedness Trek had taken in Season 2 in general. This is not what my Trek is. My Trek is supposed to be serious drama. Now, Roddenberry would eventually change his mind on that. After, the, after time and distance allowed him to look back and look at these episodes with a different light. And he would actually admit many, many years later in the late 80s slash early 90s that Trouble with Tribbles is actually one of his favorite episodes of Old Trek. But at the time, to him it was just another sign of why Kuhn was completely wrong for the job. Now, I'm building up to something bit by bit. I'm sure you've been noticing this. I've already figured out the exact episode that is near-ish when Kuhn finally left the show, and I have to say it like that, because you know how television production is. But I, I've, I have found roughly the episode where that happens, and you'll notice that the the conflict between Kuhn and Roddenberry is starting to get a little bit more heated at this point in time, and it's starting to cause some issues on top of the overwork problem I already mentioned. Remember, Kuhn has done rewrites for how many episodes in Season 2? I'll give you a hint, it's over half of them. So far. Just so far. Either way, this then leads us to the episode. We have a planet. There's a disputed claim on it. We actually name-drop the Organian Peace Treaty, so we know that's happening. Now, I'm going to sit and talk about something that I thought was cool for a minute, so I hope you'll forgive me for this. The person who gets to claim a planet is the one who can demonstrate doing the best job at utilizing it, who can develop it the best. That is so cool. I, I can't even put into words how awesome of an idea that is. No, seriously. Imagine if that, there was someone who was... Because the, the thing is, that only works if it's a rule, as in like a magical rule that just kind of exists as a form of rules magic over the setting. Or if there's someone enforcing it with, you know, godlike powers who can actually accomplish something like that, right? Because under those circumstances, you wouldn't go to war over something. You wouldn't say, oh, I want... <laughs> Uh, Alsons and Lorraine, for example. You wouldn't be like, chong, 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 and send in the troops. You would have to demonstrate that you do a better job of pro developing and, and providing for their area than the French do. And so then you do so, and then you would actually get the territory legally and bindingly without war and conflict. Let me rewind that. Without war. But definitely with conflict. Conflict would just take a totally another phrase and frame. I mean, even in this episode, we see that there is still a conflict over Sherman's planet. It's just that conflict is in the form of subterfuge and the spy and the poisoning of the grain, right? And, of course, the Federation side of that is, is crafting, genetically engineering this completely new super grain that is designed to be as workable as possible for this new planet in order to make sure that the Federation has a stronger claim. So there is this conflict here still. I'm sorry for gushing about this, but this is probably the single coolest idea Trek has ever come up with right here, and it's the backstory of the backstory of the comedy episode. Oh, I could keep going on. I'm not going to. I could keep going on and on and on 
about that topic and about how much potential there is. But first, let's talk about a Code 1. A super mega death Code 1. Everyone must be in super disaster, you know, uh, cannot recover alert. Okay. And they rush in and everything's fine. Okay. This then leads to... Uh, we find out he is the... I wrote it down. The Undersecretary in Charge of Agricultural Affairs for the Quadrant. Based on context, he probably means sector. So I'm just going to replace the word quadrant, quadrant with the word sector, okay? So he then has the authority to put the sector on high alert. What's interesting is that does not give him the authority to order a Code 1 distress call. No, it doesn't. And, and Kirk mentions this. He, he will absolutely be willing and capable of dealing with this, but his grievance legally is legitimate. You, the reason, you, and I want to just say this for a second, you don't abuse a Code 1 call because that just leads to Code 1 calls not being responded to. The whole reason they exist, the whole reason that super emergency status exists, is for you use it when the no really situation happens. When you really, no really, need that help right now and it supersedes all other concerns. If someone does that because they have a hangnail, or because they, they need someone to help fix up their hair, then that's just going to de degrade its ability and function to use as an actual distress call. Don't frickin' do that. I point this out because I'm with Kirk on this, but I am also... So, oh, what's his name? I wrote it down. Barris, I think? No, not Darth Barris. It is Barris. Holy crap, it's even spelled it. Nils Barris. Um, he's an obstinate bureaucrat. We're up to, what, like seven of these on the show so far? It's a fairly common archetype. You see why when we were going through TNG and DS9, I kept referencing TOS when it came to obstinate bureaucrats. It's because they, they, they're sprout up like tribbles in this frickin' series. Anyways, he's an obstinate bureaucrat, but as I just mentioned, he's not the first. This is why Kirk's reaction is interesting, because Kirk does actually go along with the orders and treats the situation relatively seriously. He should. This is a legitimate political thing. Remember, this is the equivalent of a war, as I highlighted earlier. There's no actual fighting, but there is severe conflict over territory with a foreign power. So Kirk does actually demonstrate taking this seriously several times. He opposes the guards, he watches the Klingons, he's very careful about which Klingons are allowed to, to, to board the Federation ship under shore leave policies laid out by the Organians. And just to skip ahead, later on in the episode, there's this bit where he and Spock basically realize, oh, God, they might have gotten into the grain. And his response is an immediate, crap, we need to go deal with this right now. He is taking it seriously. What's interesting is he is not taking Barris seriously. He demeans him and puts him down constantly. Now, why did I say all that? Because that's why he's the obstinate bureaucrat, the archetype. Not only is he, you know, an irritant, but he is sufficiently petty as to try and effectively destroy Captain Kirk's career because he wasn't being respected. Not because Kirk wasn't doing his job, because he was, demonstrably. He, he talks about calling a hearing. That hearing is a joke. Anybody who actually looked at the evidence would see very clearly and demonstrably Kirk was doing his job and did his due diligence, with possibly one exception. And that was right at the beginning when he was really pissed off at the call. After that, he was completely in compliance. Above and beyond, I would even go so far as to say. He even kicks the Klingons off the station after the brawl, just to really adamant the point. So, yeah, no. Doesn't work that way, buddy. As a quick aside, if you really want to know how much of an obstinate bureaucrat he is, there's this bit where he said, I wouldn't expect you or Spock to know anything about Quadro Triticale. 
And as he's saying that Spock, remember, at this point Spock's pride has been very firmly established, if nothing else thanks to a muck time, so... Spock's pride immediately forces him to respond. This is Quadro Triticale. I am now going to recite facts about it several, several times for some time just to make it absolutely clear that I do know what I'm talking about, you stuck-up buffoon. Funny fact, uh, Barris is the closest thing to the villain of this episode that we have, and unless you count his assistant, but anyways. <clears throat> As is so often true for the obstinate bureaucrat archetype. So Kirk's just like... Okay. Whatever. Let's go deal with this. And I like how Kirk is just, ugh, it's all this for grain. I know that sounds like a weird thing to like, but it shows that Kirk doesn't have a strategic mind. He has a tactical mind. He's good at combat, he's good at, you know, working with his ship, he's good at cunninging his way through situations, but he does not know how to zoom out the camera and think from the perspective of, well, a nation. Now, that's good. I like that. Kirk is already effectively superhuman. He doesn't need to be even more better at more things, right? But I point this out because he constantly treats this... Dis Let me rephrase that. Despite the fact that he treats it seriously, his opinion is that this is a joke. And he portrays that constantly. Oh, I can't believe we're guarding grain. He still guards the grain. There's still the guard there when they go to check the grain silo, remember? But at every point in time, he's just rolling his eyes at it, because he doesn't see the larger picture, because that's not how he thinks. This is, among many other reasons, one of the reasons why Kirk was not a good admiral, I think. In fact, you'll notice Admiral Kirk ended up being stuck on Earth doing training exercises and being in charge of that side of things, which makes sense for someone who can't zoom out and see the bigger picture. If anything, his promotion to Admiralty was effectively retirement which, given how they treat Commodores and ground-side operations, makes sense. Anyways. So at nine minutes in, we get introduced to... Well, actually, at eight minutes in, Chekhov demonstrates he knows what Quadratriticale is. But then we get introduced to the Tribble. Let's get that this out of the way. Tribbles are super cute. I actually have a Tribble. I think I have a Gamma Tribble on my STO character. I don't remember. I actually, I also have a stat tribble, one that I bred up to get the exact right stats. I don't even know if those stats are really useful anymore. Even when I did it, they were just a minor buff, and it's only for ground-based operations, but it's whatever. But they're cute, you know. Okay, they're cute. I'm with it. <clears throat> uh, so they are a parasite. An absolutely insidious parasite. To the extent that I am astonished. These things can superbreed, superfeed, and then keep superbreeding. Now this makes sense. There's actually an offhand comment by Spock about a planet absolutely full of predators, which gets across the idea that they have then evolved the idea of superbreeding in order to survive, which of course then makes most of the predators on that planet probably want those who have specifically evolved to eat tribbles, because they're the plentiful food source. There's actually a logic to this whole chain. It's it's surprising how well thought out this is in its own right. But they are absolutely insidious when they are removed from those predators. You ever heard of the cuteness thing? The cuteness evolutionary factor? I've heard it seen a few times. To my knowledge, it is not a codified truth. You know, it, it's still in the realm of theory and hasn't really been proven or disproven. But I have seen a fairly large amount of people who have talked about the idea of cuteness being an evolutionary trait which is developed okay let's rewind for a second here 
evolution doesn't happen on an individual scale. Evolution is simply the process by which um, certain people who have uh, certain groups, certain individuals of a species, by genetic random chance, happen to have a feature that makes it easier for them to survive, which means they're the ones that breed more, which means that feature then goes from being a random freak chance to being the norm. Okay, got out of the way? The idea here is that being cute is something that allowed creatures to survive, which allowed them to breed, which allowed them to be more cute. There's also some actual specific breeding, as in controlled uh, breeding involved. Like, we know that one of the reasons dogs are the way they are right now is because of us. <laughs> and the fact that we've been coordinating with dogs since... I don't actually know when. A very long time ago. So whether this is true or not, it's an interesting theory and would line up interestingly with the Tribbles. So most species are not going to be inclined to kill these insidious parasites. And so the insidious parasites are going to do exactly what they do in this episode on two separate space-bound vehicles, I remind you. The station and the Enterprise, and eventually the, the Klingon ship. But both of those ships, both of those Federation uh, space... Things? We're going to call them things. Because I don't know how to loop a, a spaceship and a space station in the same thing. Space things get completely infested and overrun by these things to the point where it actually starts interfering with normal shipboard functions. Not just because everyone's distracted by them, even Spock, although him petting the triple was hilarious, but also to the point where they're getting into the food stores. And remember, this is not the Enterprise... Excuse me, this is not the Enterprise era. Wow. This is not the TNG era. When I think of Enterprise, the ship, the ship that I immediately think of is the D. Enterprise D. So, Galaxy Class. They don't have replicators. They have food stores, which gets reconstituted and resequenced. We, we, we've covered this before. And those food stores are being consumed by pests, which is what these are. Interestingly enough, the idea of tri a tribble that is, say, neutered, or a group of tribbles which are carefully controlled, actually makes perfect sense. But only under very controlled circumstances. It's no wonder the Klingons decided to wipe this species out. And, to be perfectly blunt, I agree completely with the reasoning. Maybe not to the point of total genocide, that that's a little bit much. But can you blame them? Interestingly enough, we do have a rough time frame for when that happened, because it had to happen after Star Trek Three, because there was a Tribble in Star Trek Three. That's about all we got on that one. Anywho, so the Tribbles are Tribbles. I'm just waiting for people in chat to be like, Oh my god! And by chat, I mean comments. How could you talk that way about the Tribbles? Because they're terrifying. Anyway. <clears throat> Do I still have my assimilated Tribble? Hmm. This then leads to an interesting bit of marketing bid. So, <laughs> Uhura tries to get the Tribble, and Cyrano Jones tries to sell it. Six credits each, for which the guy then resells it for. Ten credits. Okay, that's cute. I'm going to ignore the economics discussion. I think we've tread over the economics ground many, many times, and actually this is the very first time hard currency is mentioned. Let me rephrase that. A currency name is mentioned in TOS. There have been references to money several, several times, and trade, going as far back as Mud's Women, and uh, probably most predominantly in The Devil in the Dark. However, this is the first time the word credits is ever used, and thus denotates some kind of actual currency. Just, just noting while we're here. Either way, he then offers her a free tribble. Now that makes perfect sense. You're probably thinking, why? Marketing. In offering her the free Tribble and her going around and being like, oh, it's so cute, and everyone's saying, oh, I want one, then they drum up business, right? That would make perfect sense, if not for the fact that they're Tribbles. That would work like a kitten, 
if you're selling kittens, which is a weird thought, but whatever. But these are tribbles. As demonstrated not too many scenes from now, when they go into the rec room, she already has like 11 or 12 or whatever, which everyone's just like, yeah, I'll take one, which then allows them to spread. You see how they are basically a virus, by the way? No, I'm not joking about that. They have, they, they have, they're they on to one person, Uhura, who takes it to the ship, and then it breeds because she feeds it, and then the, that group is then taken by individual groups to spread throughout the ship, and you can see how it just kind of naturally grows from there, can't you? You can almost see the vectors of it getting throughout the ship. Anyways, so that makes perfect sense from a marketing perspective, except for the fact that they're tribbles. This is also a good time to mention that Cyrano Jones is a moron. You ever get the vibe he was supposed to be just Mud, but he couldn't be because Mud is currently serving up parole on the android planet? I'm being serious here. He comes across as someone who's not stupid, but he's kind of leaning that way, in a similar way to Mud. His big plan is to rope around selling random baubles which are useless and tribbles. Let me say that one more time. Selling tribbles. Something that you can sell basically once per outpost. Sure. If he was smart, he would breed them very carefully and controlledly in his own situation. And then the ones that are that are born, he would select some from that, neuter them, and then sell those. I keep mentioning neutering tribbles. I forget where that's mentioned. I know it's a thing somewhere in track that we that, that, that tribbles can be neutered. Anywho. So this is when Koloth shows up, who was supposed to be Kor which I mentioned before, but he is played by William Campbell, so I'm willing to let it go at this point. Although he does... William Campbell's great, but he does play this pretty pretty similarly to Trelane. It's actually kind of funny. I, it would really amuse me if this effectively was Trelane, just trying another method of interacting with Kirk. Just food for thought. You'll notice that he even goes scampering when Kirk is harsh and disciplinary towards him, just like, just like was happening with Trelane, where Trelane couldn't deal with the authority figure thing. Anywho... Koloth shows up. Woo! Scotty decides to go relax with some technical journals. You don't even like that? I do. No, no judgment at all. We all relax in our own ways. Even Picard just likes to relax with a good old book, fall asleep to reading, you know. Tribbles are spreading. Spock pets the tribbles. Blah blah blah. We're going to zoom forward a little bit because there's a lot of establishment, which is good stuff here. Um, Kirk starts to really acquiesce. The tribbles spread even more. Kirk, now this is funny, Kirk sends Scotty specifically, even though Scotty doesn't want to go, to the station to be part of the R&R. Why? To keep people out of trouble, because there are going to be Klingons there. Okay, that makes perfect sense, and he obviously knows Scotty is not a person to start a fight. This then leads to the bar scene, and where you can see Worf and Odo in the corner, and we see the Tribbles interacting with the Klingons. Quick thought. The Klingons don't seem to have any confusion about what Tribbles are. Do you think they've already encountered them? Just food for thought. Like I said, we know the Klingon genocide doesn't happen until later. The Great Trouble Hunt. Hmm. So this is... As usual, I now have to explain the joke, which is my job, being the very boring, dull person that I am. So allow me to do the best I can. First, we have comedic timing, which is a thing where he pulls up each of the tribbles from under the bar. This is also a form of repetition comedy, which I've talked about several times. Basically, there's like bands of humor. It's like right here and right here. So you start off, then you repeat it, and it's funny, and then it stops being funny, and then it starts being funny again, and then it stops being funny, and it stays not funny, and that's those are the two bands of acceptability in terms of repetition. He does this, he gets to the first one, basically. This then leads to the actual fight. 
Notice that this is, so once again, explaining the joke. The comedy, the joke here, is the setup and payoff version. This is a pretty classic joke. Um, <clears throat> Sir, you suck. Okay. Your face sucks. Okay. Your mother sucks. Okay. I like episode eight. Oh, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. That's the format of the joke. In other words, the whole point of the joke is the... I suppose the juxtaposition of how the thing that shouldn't actually really matter and was the m mildest insult of all is the thing that finally set off the fight. You'll notice that he insults humanity pretty severely, and then he goes way out of his way to insult Kirk. Then he calls the Enterprise a garbage scow. Oh, and then it should be hauled haul away as garbage. That's it. Really basic schoolyard bully level insults, which is pathetic. That's what sets Scotty off. That's the joke. In fact, later in the episode, this joke is actually explained by the episode. Because Scotty recites this to Kirk and mentions just all the insults that were going to Kirk. And Kirk's like, okay, well, obviously then you started the fight. And he's, you can see he's just kind of okay with that just a little bit. Like, yeah, okay, okay, they insulted me, so you did it. No, sir. No, I, I, I didn't fight them until they said the Enterprise was a garbage scow. Oh. Okay. The fight itself is actually very well done, though. See, normally a fight sequence like this, you notice we have to have a fight, even in a comedy episode. Normally a fight sequence like this would be here specifically to um, be the big action sequence, you know, the big conflict or whatever. But instead what they do here is they clearly portray this for laughs. And the way they do this is they keep cutting away to Cyrano. You know, so first of all, the bartender just leaves and he's all droll the whole time, like, oh, I've seen this 15 times today, wanders off to get security comes back with them and grabs the drink on his way back in. The whole time the comedic music is playing, which helps. But the fact that it keeps cutting to Cyrano and him just kind of reacting while he gets his free drinks, that shows you the tone I mentioned earlier. Even as he tries to cross the area, he keeps his one drink up there, like, ah, da, 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 just trying to dance through the fighting to avoid it. So we get comedy, but we also get the action sequence. Pretty effective. This... <laughs> This then leads to the fact that they are freaking everywhere. They actually made 500 of this prop for this episode. Estimated, obviously. There's also this line Kirk gives, which is totally true. Too much of a good thing, even love, is a bad thing. I'm not going to touch that love part of that, but he's right. As I, as I like to say, too much air will kill you. Too much water will kill you, you know? I mean, come on, this is a duh. This is the thing. The Tribbles, this is what makes the Tribbles such an insidious parasite and why I hate them so much. Because they're cute and fuzzy when there's one of them. Or five of them. Or even 20 of them. But when there's 500 of them infesting every aspect of your ship, you've gone from, oh, that's nice, to, ah, we're running out of food! The moment you have to start considering cannibalizing the dead, that may be the point in which you've gone a little bit too far. Either way, this is when we hear about the predator-filled habitat thing I mentioned. And, of course, Barris is the obstinate bureaucrat, and this, this just, I'm just going to fast forward through this, because the, what, next, what next happens is i got to tell you a scene. Uh, Chris and Montgomery Doohan were on the set, and they were just visiting, hung out in the car, and then they left the car because they're seven, and they were wandering around the set, and they noticed this bin, and they look up, like, oh, what's up there? So they open it, and a bunch of tribbles come pouring out. They freak out and run into the car and close the door. Years later, they related this story to their father, Miss, you know, Scotty, 
and he was apparently quite angry with them despite the passage of time, which, I mean, honestly, I would be too. <clears throat> but I wanted to mention that, because it helps set the scene. So they've got these tribbles in this freaking bin, and that's why it's so nonsensical. This is a very minor nitpick, but I have to point this out because this has bothered me since I was a kid. Why is there a storage bin that is supposed to contain a very heavy substance, the grain, open down? So you have to stand underneath it to open it. Now the answer... Whoops. No, we're still here. Weird. We're still here, right? We're still recording? Yeah, okay. Sorry, I lost my monitor there for a second. The reason for this is so that the Tribbles can fall down on Kirk. That's why the set is designed that way. But that makes absolutely no sense, and the more you think about it, the less sense it makes. Remember, that's supposed to be grain. In fact, it makes even less sense, because Kirk was specifically going in there to find the grain. Anywho, <clears throat> having done this, <laughs> having done this incredibly insane thing, Kirk gets pelted by Tribbles. Now, I've, I've been a little bit harsh on this episode, and I've been... It, it's worth noting, I do still absolutely love this episode. I guess I haven't been harsh about it. I've just been talking about topics more than the joke and the lighthearted tone. I do like this episode. It's a great romp. It's a great fun. This is important. Most of the comedy is in character. Now, this is something... And I'm going to commit a cardinal sin here. I'm going to compare this to My Little Pony. Which, uh, by the time this episode goes live, we should be done with on the show. And over on the My Little Pony show... There's two types of comedy that they do. One is out of character, and one is in character. The out of character drives me batty. Because the only way the comedy works is if the characters act out of character. In short, character assassination. The in character works great, because it uses the character traits and the way those characters work in order to craft the comedy. Which is exactly what this episode does. Kirk, Spock, Chekhov, Uhura, uh, Uhuru, Uhura, Uhura, oh god, I can't remember. It is Uhura. Sorry, Star Trek Six. You can blame Star Trek Six for that one. And uh, and I mentioned Scotty, Chekhov, Spock. That's I think that's everyone. Everyone's in character, right? Sulu's gone because he's filming the Green Beret. Everyone's in character. There's no point at which they break character for the sake of a gag or a joke. Instead, they're all being themselves, and that's part of how the comedy works. Is because it is our familiar characters in an unusual situation. Kirk just kind of being like. Ugh. Having that just long-suffering, oh my god, are you kidding me, look, as the Tribbles are pelting him, is hilarious, specifically because that is Kirk. And that's how Kirk would react to that, with that, you've got to be kidding me kind of approach. Fun fact, that was take eight, because they kept having issues with the, the barrage of Tribbles. So they had to do that shot eight times, which is why William Shatner looked so, oh, you got to be kidding me, because he was sick of the takes. I, I don't know if that was done on purpose by Pevney in order to get this result. I doubt it. But it worked really well regardless. So, brah, pelt, pelt, pelt. <sighs> okay. This sucks. <laughs> this then leads to the construction of the episode. Remember I mentioned that every episode has a, has a purpose to it, right? Uh, I, I actually brought this up not last week. Uh, it was two weeks ago, I think, with... Oh, gosh, I can't think of the name of the episode. The the aging one. The Deadly Years. That's it. The Deadly Years. You know, each episode has a construction, a purpose. You know, This one is actually mystery, believe it or not. No, really, think about it. Early on, we established the Tribbles. 
if you remember, way back when Cyrano Jones was trying to sell the trouble to the bartender, I tried to look up the character name, he's literally listed as K7 Bartender, there's this brief shot where the Tribble scooches over and starts to eat some of the Quadricruta Kaylee that Chekhov has. We also have several bits where, excuse me, uh, we, we, the, the, the Tribbles slowly start to infiltrate systems and areas, including air vents and machinery. There's the fact that uh, Darren actually does several attempts in order to try and push his obstinate bureaucrat boss, who is the obvious fake-out villain, into, you know, into maneuvering for him, including uh, trying to accuse Cyrano Jones of being a Klingon infiltrator, which he himself is, Darren, obviously, Aaron Darren. Just aren't, there's all sorts of little build-ups, which then lead to, oh yeah, also, one other thing, sorry. The Tribbles interacting with the Klingons badly was also established relatively earlier on with the, with the bar scene. So all the pieces are there for the mystery to be solved by the time we end up. The only piece that was missing was what's going on with the Tribbles who are dead. We find out that they're poisoned. By the way, that's got to be a horrific thought, isn't it? Starving to death amongst a ton of food. That, there's something about that just sounds really horrific. It's like one of the layers of hell kind of a thing, right? Hey, there's food everywhere. Can't eat. And you die. <sighs> so we find out Arndaran is in fact a Klingon agent who's been restructured. And we once again go back to that earlier point I mentioned. This is a conflict. It's not open warfare, but it is still a battle nonetheless. And this is how the Klingons were waging it. With infiltration and with sabotage. Or sabotage, if you prefer. So you can see how, even despite the comedy, this is a well-constructed episode, which I think is one of the reasons why this succeeded so well. Oh, don't mistake me, the reason this episode is popular is because of the comedy. But I think it is a good episode in despite of that, and that's important, because remember, if there's something that's a comedy that you don't like, if you don't think it's funny, then that's worse than if it wasn't trying to be a comedy at all. I've talked about this concept before. If you don't get the joke, or worse, if the joke just isn't for you, then you're just sitting there going, okay, I know that feeling. I've done that many times, and I'm sure many of you have, too. Probably at me, because I'm not actually funny. So having a good episode structure underneath this really helps buoy this into the, you know, the higher tier of quality, in my opinion. That's actually all I got to talk about. Uh, I could mention the fact that tribbles are glitter. Okay, real talk. You ever heard about the glitter curse? So there's this glitter stuff, and, you know, some people put it on their face, you know. Uh, one of my girlfriends of many, many years ago, like 20, no, 18 years ago at this point, she used to do glitter stuff. I found glitter, like, on my clothes and at my desk for literally weeks afterwards. I would just be like, no, 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 and there's just a piece of glitter there. Substantially more recently, uh, my niece decided to have some glitter for a, for a Halloween thing. Now... <laughs> I don't interact with my niece that much. It was mostly like a hi and a quick hug and then off she went. I was still finding glitter a week or two later because glitter just does that. Apparently it's the same thing with the tribbles, as in the actual physical prop. They had 500 of these things made, and according to some accounts, they were still finding them months later. Just randomly. One would be like, oh, hey, there's another tribble. <laughs> I find that appropriately ironic. I can also mention how the end of this episode might have deliberately and directly led to the Tribble Genocide, beaming all of them over to the Klingon ship. What's funny is, if not for the Oganian Treaty, that would constitute an act of war. No, I'm serious. The Klingons hate the Tribbles. 
The Tribbles hate the Klingons to a severe extent in both cases, in both directions. And they are an invasive parasite that spreads like wildfire. That's an act of war. I don't care how silly or funny that is. But thankfully that Organian Treaty is in there, so this is just another act of sabotage instead. Enjoy! <laughs> but again, I wonder if that led to the Great Tribble Hunt. No, really, think about it. Think about how those Tribbles probably spread throughout the Klingon Empire from just Koloth's ship. That can't have been fun. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a very fun and enjoyable episode. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on it. I'll see you next time. I thought about having a Tribble here, but I couldn't get a hold of one, I'm sorry. Maybe I'll Photoshop one in.